Maybe you saw this story about a month ago. This couple was sailing across the Pacific Ocean on a boat with their two young daughters, and one of the kids was three, and the other was just a baby, like a year old. And uh, the baby got sick, and they called in rescuers. Four Air National Guardsmen parachuted in. A Navy vessel traveled 2,000 miles to reach them. And this got a lot of play, can I say kind of weirdly, in newspapers, online, on morning TV. Emergency medics parachuting in to save a sick baby on board a sailboat adrift at sea. ABC's Martha Raddatz here with that story. And Martha, so many questions about what that family was doing out there in the first place. Uh, so many questions this morning, George. This rescue on Good Morning America, George Stephanopoulos and Martha Raddatz updated viewers on the rescue, but also raised the question that seemed to animate a lot of the interest in the story. That question... Were these bad parents? Their trip immediately sparking criticism on the family's Facebook page. One person calling them irresponsible parents. Another writing, how selfish to jeopardize the lives of their tiny and helpless children. The family's boat has now sunk along with everything on it, but this was indeed a very costly rescue. Everybody is very happy the baby was saved, but I don't know about you guys, but when I have children by a swimming pool, I'm nervous. Yeah, don't know I how don't they know do how it. they could do it at all. Okay, Martha, thanks very much. The front page New York Times story on the family was headlined, quote, two tots, a sailboat, and a storm over parenting, and quoted experienced sailors arguing pro and con, whether it was okay to take a baby to sea. People went online and they read the blogs that these parents were keeping of their voyage online. And what a surprise this being the Internet. They found things to get angry at. Comments on the Internet ranged from, why take a baby out to sea when she's a baby? After all, she won't remember it. To a point a lot of people made, quote, this family should be forced to pay for the rescue. Who in the hell takes two little kids on a voyage like this? So that is how the whole thing looked from dry land. But 1,200 miles out in the middle of the ocean in the cabin of a 36-foot boat, it looked pretty different. The parents, their names are Eric and Charlotte Kaufman, say that a whole bunch of things had gone wrong besides the sick baby. The boat was taking on water. Eric is an experienced sailor with a Coast Guard master's license. It takes 360 days on the water to get that, and it means that he can captain a commercial vessel, which he has done. And he says that when things started to get bad on his sailboat, he started thinking about this piece of gear they have on the boat. It looks like a fluorescent green Big Gulp cup with electronics inside and a little antenna that sticks out called an EPIRB. EPIRB stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. And basically when all else fails, you break a seal, you push a button, and this device transmits your coordinates to authorities who know that it means that you are in trouble and they need to send help. And on day 16 of their trip, well, here's Eric and then also Charlotte. I just looked over at the bulkhead and there's the EPIRB sitting up there kind of staring back at me. And I kind of ran through it in my head a few times, like, all right, like, have we done everything we reasonably can do? Um, is, is this real? Like, is this really happening? I'm not, we're not sleep deprived. Like, this is a real thing. Um, we, we did the math that we were going to lose the boat. I was going to have to scuttle it. I mean, we were married and lived on our boat. We were engaged and lived on our boat before that. Both of our kids grew up on that boat. Um, and we were in the middle of crossing an ocean going to the South Pacific. I mean, how idyllic can you get, right? I mean, there are songs about that stuff. And instead, we were about to push this button that shifts that whole reality into a whole different reality and a reality we didn't want. Now, this, this eventually became national news, the fact that you, you called for help. Did you have any sense of like, okay, so we pushed this button and now we're famous? No, never. We were completely, completely thrown, uh, thrown, thrown aback by that. We thought, 
you know, some of the sailing message boards are going to have a thread about this. After all, they knew about other boats that had called for help, and it never seemed to land anybody on morning television or get talked about on The View or even make the paper. And as for bringing two small children with them, it literally didn't occur to them that that could be an issue for anybody because they knew lots of other families through sailing message boards that they were on with kids just as young as theirs. Oh, yes. In fact, three, three other boats did the Pacific Crossing this year. The youngest baby was four months old. In fact, our daughter was the oldest baby, the one-year-old. She was the oldest. The rest were all younger. We read somebody from the American Boat and Yacht Council, which writes the safety guidelines for these kinds of boats. And he confirmed that there are, in fact, thousands of families living on boats, tooling around the world with children of all ages. He said that what the Kaufmans did was not unusual at all. In fact, he said, however it might sound to people who do not sail, crossing an ocean on a sailboat is routine. He said it was on the adventurous side of routine, but it was routine. So when Eric and Charlotte Kaufman got to safety and realized the reaction their story was getting, they put out a statement on the Internet. It said, quote, for those who are more critical, we ask that you kindly await all the details. They thought that if people heard the whole story, everything that happened to them, their choices would seem reasonable. But they didn't say anymore. They didn't say anything else. They gave no interviews explaining what really happened until today. Today in our program, we have them and their story, and we also have other stories of people calling for help. It turns out that when you call for help, it can lead you to places that you never suspected that it possibly ever could. Including, by the way, we have former Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson stepping in to lend a hand about a matter that is not the kind of matter that one usually turns to the United States Senate for. Not actually the kind of thing that the Senate usually handles at all. Stay with us. when May Day comes in April. Okay, some basic facts about Eric and Charlotte Kaufman. First off, okay, whatever impressions you have of people who own boats, they are not rich. The boat is their house. They have no other home. This is where their savings went. Before they set sail last month, Eric made his living doing a computer job for a financial services company. Eric and Charlotte have been preparing for this trip seriously since 2010 when they started buying safety gear and did all the careful steps you do to make a boat as safe as possible, replace the rigging and chain plates, that kind of thing. The plan was they were going to travel to the Pacific Islands, make it to New Zealand before November, then live in New Zealand for a couple of years and then on to Micronesia and Indonesia. And then who knows where? When I asked Eric how long the trip was going to be, he didn't have an answer. Years for sure. The idea was they would head out and then just figure it out which made me especially interested in the moment that they decided to give all that up and call for help. Like, what happened, you know, that made them abandon everything they had been hoping for and planning for for years and years? Well, Eric said that one of the big problems began the day before they called for help. Basically, they sailed into a part of the ocean called the Intertropical Convergence Zone, where they hit some nasty weather and waves. Not horrible, Eric said. You'd expect this kind of thing on an ocean crossing. But they were getting rained on every 30 to 35 minutes with squalls. Waves are going over the boat, covering the deck. And then here's the bad part. They get broached, which is sailing language for a wave pushed their boat onto its side. Just for a few seconds, and then it righted itself. We got knocked over several times. you know. And, and people have asked Eric, you know, were you scared out there? And Eric, Eric always says, no, I wasn't scared. But... I was in the cabin with the girls, and one time our, our oldest was going to the bathroom um, by herself because, you know, she's three, she's almost four, she wants to do everything by herself. And when that wave hit, it's the scariest sound. 
Because it's just a big bang? Yeah, it's this huge bang. It's like it's like you were in a car accident. You're expecting to go up and see who, you know, just T-boned you, but it was it was a wave. And so you guys are downstairs in the cabin and Eric is upstairs driving the boat. Is he is, is he upstairs out on the deck when the boat gets turned on its side? Yes, he was definitely on the side decks. Um, but he goes out there, you know, clipped in. And, you know, we all maintain the rule, one hand for you, one hand for the ship. So he's always holding on. So he's clipped on with with straps and stuff, so he can't just go into the water. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I think the hardest part for people who don't sail to really to imagine about this trip is that you, you're constantly in motion. You're burning calories just by sitting because your body is constantly um, fighting to keep you in an upright position. You, 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 we could never stand still. You know, when, I, when I'm making food, I have to brace my feet at a, at, a, at a really far angle, or I had to wear a belt, a galley belt, in order just to, just to stay upright. We, we would have to, uh, our youngest daughter, she slept in a little chair, a little kind of kid seat strapped down in her bunk, because if we had just put her in her berth, she, her body would literally be, have been just rolling five inches, rolling five inches, rolling, because she was too little to kind of lay spread eagle and brace herself at night to sleep. Now to get broached by itself is not such a big deal. Eric says lots of boats get broached. Yeah, I mean, you want to minimize it as much as you possibly can. And you probably did something wrong or you could have been more active on the helm or something like that. But it's not like, oh my gosh, like this is horrible. Like no boat has ever experienced this. Like that's, that's not the case. It's, it's sailing across an ocean. It's what it is. You know, if you, don't want to, if you don't want to take hits like that, don't go across an ocean. The problem, he says, is that when their boat got knocked onto its side, it put the boom into the water. Now, I didn't know what a boom was, and so he had to explain that to me. If you picture a triangular sail on a sailboat, Okay, there's the mast, which runs vertically from the deck, right? Sticks into the sky. And then the horizontal pole that runs along the bottom of the sail, like parallel to the water, that's the boom. And when they got broached, the boom went into the water. And when the boat bounced back upright, the boom is connected to the mast and the rigging, which is connected to the hull with wires and chain plates. And with all that pressure on the boom... That basically yanked on enough stuff that it caused um, breaks in the in the hull in a couple different places, which, you know, we, I, I kind of, I knew where a couple of them were, and then some of them actually just proceeded to get worse and worse. Um, and then at that point, we started having a lot of leaking at the hull deck joint on the starboard quarter. Sorry for kind of <laughs> turning into boat nerd on you, but that's, I think we ended up maybe about taking on like 60 or 70 gallons a day, which isn't really that bad if you think about how quick you can move a bucket if somebody, you know, put a gun to your head and said, you know, move that water. He had a big, heavy manual pump on board that pumped a gallon with each stroke. So 60 to 70 gallons took, you know, a few minutes. No biggie. Yeah, the boat's not going to sink at that point. You know, we're not all going to die because we've got like a bunch of water coming in. It's a pain in the ass, but it's not the end of the world. You know, there you are. It, It was under control. So that was one thing, uh, but there was another. Their baby daughter, Lyra, was sick. Now, contrary to what you might have read or heard about this part of the story, if you followed this story at all, the baby was not sick when they started their trip. She'd had salmonella poisoning before they set out on the trip, but they waited for her to get better. They delayed their trip, and they only went to sea after they got a clean bill of health from her doctor. And for the first week of the trip, she was healthy. But then, seven days in, she got a rash. 
Here's Charlotte. Kids get rashes, so we didn't freak out. Um, but then she got her ears started to smell like cheese. Um, at first, we thought it was because we weren't bathing <laughs> enough. We were all pretty like dirty. Um, so you know, we, we cleaned her ears up, and they still smelled like cheese. But now we've got two things going on. And then she started uh, getting diarrhea. And then she started act, acting lethargic. And, you know, when your kid starts to act differently, that's when you need to uh, really pay attention. So they got on the satellite phone and they called Weira's doctor and he said to give her amoxicillin, an antibiotic, which they do for a couple days. And it doesn't work. Kid's still sick. And now they don't know how worried they should be. You know, with kids within 24 hours, you should see results with antibiotics. And th- there was no improvement. Now, the two days that Weir is taking antibiotics are the same two days that the boat enters those rough seas where they're getting broached and water starts to leak in. And so on the morning of their 16th day at sea, Eric decides as a safety precaution to advise the Coast Guard of what is happening, just in case things go south. We're just going to let them know, hey, you know, this is the situation. This is our medical situation. This is who's on board. This is the sea state we're at right now so that if this gets any worse, they have some context of what's actually happening. And he called them um, with our satellite phone and gave them that update. Which in the maritime world is, is, you know, it's not the most common thing to do, but it's certainly, uh, you know, smiled upon to do that. And they said, okay, we're going to talk to the doctor here. Leave Leave your satellite phone on for a certain amount of time and we'll call you back. And when we hung up with them, the satellite phone never worked again after that call with the, with the Coast Guard. Um, we weren't able to reach anybody else. It just said SIM card error, SIM card error, over and over and over. And, you know, and I tried everything. I took the thing out and cleaned it and, you know, prayed to it and begged it and put it back in. And, and uh, I tried dialing the emergency numbers, and then it was like, sorry, from where you are, you can't dial the emergency number. And I'm like, this is so awesome. They found out later what happened. Apparently, a week after they'd headed out to sea, their satellite phone company changed the brand of SIM card that it used. And the company mailed new SIM cards to everybody who had a phone through the mail, the regular mail. Even though people with satellite phones, the whole point of a satellite phone is that you're not anywhere normal, right? You're off far away on a mountain or a desert or anywhere that regular phones do not work. So they mailed us a new SIM card, and then they deactivated them the week after they mailed them. Um, so, uh, there was just some guy in some office somewhere that was like drinking his coffee and at the exact, you know what I mean? Like at the same time, I like hung up the phone with the Coast Guard, you know, he like, but do presses the little button and then <laughs> that's it. Game over. <laughs> so, but you know, have no fail. We have a, a, a long range radio, you know, there's two different radios on the boat and we use that, but that seawater that I was talking about coming down the starboard quarter, well, the battery compartment is under that stuff, and so was the radio fittings. So all the radio over the last few days now was all getting bathed slowly but surely in a nice coating of seawater. Um, and I, I get on the long-range radio, and I started issuing uh, pon-pon distress calls, which is like the step under a mayday, um, you know, on the emergency. Pon-pon? Pon-pon, yeah. Pon-pon, pon-pon, pon-pon. This is the sailing vessel, Rebel Heart, that position, da 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we started doing the pon-pons and didn't get anything back. Does that mean that the radio isn't working, or does that mean that no one is close enough to hear you? I don't know. I thought, how are we going to do this? I made him do the math. I said, how much longer do we have, you know? If she is sick, 
and she doesn't get better, will we be there in a week? Um, you know, he did he did the math in three weeks, and I thought, oh gosh, how are we going to do this? And um, you wouldn't be there for three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Now it's not just that they're three weeks from where they're going. Where they're going is incredibly rustic, the Marquesas Island chain in French Polynesia. A beautiful place, but a place that is not notorious for its medical services. Right, like they don't have a, um, a blood testing facility there, right? Like the first place we were going to go to doesn't even accept, they don't even use money. So he and Charlotte sit in the boat's cabin and they talk. He remembers he had his logbook in his hand. So, so at that point, you've got, you, you've got a boat that isn't, isn't horribly bad, but you've got a boat that has, has flooding that your, your automatic bilge pumps won't keep up with anymore. Like no one would go to sea on a boat like that. It's not good. It's not fatal, but it's not good. Um, we have unknown other structural damage that's causing water to come in beyond what I've been able to see. Um, yeah, I mean, like our, one of our solar panels was ripped off. Some of our electronics were starting to fail because the water was going into the battery compartment. Um, our satellite phone was out. So now if we needed any other kind of medical care at all, I mean, if somebody bonked their head, I mean, anything. My child had whatever medical stuff was going on with her, you know, the symptoms are pretty clear and laid out as they are. Um, and, and I don't see it getting any better. When you lay it out this way, it seems like it wasn't actually a difficult decision. It seems like it was obvious what to do. Like, you didn't actually have to struggle. Do I have that right? Yeah, well, I mean, it really took about, you know, 10 minutes once, once I realized. I mean, really, once you know that you have a person on board that, um, that is sick with an ailment that is not responding to the treatment that's been provided to it, and you no longer have access to medical care, and you won't for weeks to go, um, and that that person is, I mean, once you know that, once you know that right there, what, what else would you do? I mean, what would you do? Would you just keep sailing for three weeks? Now, of course, if they take action, if they use the EPIRB, remember, the EPIRB is the emergency device that calls for help, nobody's going to, like, tow their boat to safety, their boat which they had been living on, their boat that was their whole life. Nobody was going to pick them up and save their daughter and then return them to the boat later. And at that point, you know, he said, we've got to use the EPIRB. And I had walked forward in the boat, which is a challenge. Forward is always the bumpiest part of the boat. And um, I was kind of feigning like I needed to go to the bathroom, but I was just really just trying to walk away from the decision. And um, and he he just followed me forward and sat there talking, you know, and, and saying, like, this is what we've got to do. And, and, and I'm standing there holding on to the boat. It's bumping up and down because I'm in the bumpiest part of the boat. And you know that if if you hit the EPIRB, help will come. Um, but when you hit it, you also know that your home is gone. Yeah. So that's the hard part. You're safe. Well, hopefully you'll be safe, but that's it. Logistically, I go and take it and strap it up to the to the deck up on the, one of the handrails up on the foredeck. So because it has a little sticker, it says "Keep a clear view of the sky." Um, and then it just sits there strobing, which is kind of interesting because you kind of wonder, like, is it actually doing anything or is it just strobing? And then you wait. You know, there's no nothing, no magical sparkles that come out. There's nothing that says, we got it. We got your message. You just have to trust that um, somebody, 
somewhere in front of a computer is getting this message and is going to help coordinate getting you help. So that was in the morning of their 16th day at sea that they pushed the button on the EPIRB. It took until near sunset for anything to happen. First, there was a burst of static on the radio, which they thought was dead, the radio. They hadn't heard anything from anybody on it in a week. It was a plane with rescuers saying they were on their way. And then this E-130 just comes screeching out of the middle of nowhere and, you know, buzzes us. It seems like maybe like 100 feet, 200 feet off the deck. I mean, really close, you know, comes right on top of us. And then in my head, I mean, on the, you know, on the one hand, like, you know, you want to like start singing the national anthem, right? I mean, you're seriously like, dude, like no corniness aside, like this is awesome. Like I live in a country that can, that can do this. I mean, like we, with this, this button I pressed caused this plane to show up. And then you start wondering, you're like, wait a second, like it's a plane and we're on a boat and we need to get out of here. How's that going to work? You know, like, yeah, yeah. What, you know? Sure enough, you know, they throw smoke grenades out the back and they're, you know, and they're out come, you know, they, they kick some gear out the back that comes out on a parachute. So then these four guys all jump out of the back with their parachute gear and they have a, uh, a Zodiac, like an inflatable boat with an outboard on the back and they press some buttons and boom, this thing pops to life and they all hop in it. And then, you know, long story short, we, you know, they got close to us, we got close to them. And then we bring these guys on board, and they just hop on the boat. And then um, one of the guys immediately went down and started working with Lyra. This is the baby, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, doing – they're all very highly trained uh, medical professionals. So one of the guys just immediately went, went to her. The Pacific Ocean is so big that it took three days for a Navy vessel to get to them at full speed. The four guys stayed on the sailboat with the Kaufmans during that time with all their gear in the tiny non-air-conditioned cabin, six adults and two kids in this small boat. Eric says everybody got to know everybody pretty well. When they transferred off the boat to the USS Vandergriff, Charlotte had the kids say goodbye to their home, and she said goodbye herself. Eric cut some hoses inside the boat, which flooded it with seawater, and sank his own boat. He didn't want it to go down, though. It's been a month now. They never did figure out what exactly Lyra had that made her so sick. And she's still not completely recovered, but she's doing better. And Charlotte and Eric say they do not regret the decision they made. And I don't, and I don't really need anybody to, to validate that. You know, I know there's people out there that have their, their thoughts and their commentary about things. Um, you know, send in emails that, you know, me and my family should go drown. Um, you know, I could really, couldn't really, you know, give it less what a whole bunch of people think. I mean, we were, we were where we were. We had the situation that we had. Um, and here we are. Alive. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I could flip it around the other way and say I'm a, you know, a 35-year-old man who made his family homeless. Um, I mean, if I'm feeling kind of negative about it, I can look at it that way, too. Kaufman. Coming up, Senators Gone Wild. Well, one senator anyway. That's in a minute. From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. It's American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, Call for Help. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Government Assistance. This next story is about what 
might be one of the strangest constituent requests of a politician, like, ever. It's told to us by a fellow public radio reporter from WNYC, Anna Sale. One day last fall, my cell phone went dead at work. I left it to charge on a coworker's desk. When I picked it up a few hours later, there was this odd message. Ms. Anna Sales, this is Alan K. Simpson in the wilds of Wyoming, former U.S. Senator. Need to talk to you about an urgent matter. Nothing life-threatening at all, I can assure you. But give me I was covering politics at the time, but there was no reason that former Republican Senator Alan Simpson should be calling me out of the blue, urgent or otherwise. Anyway, give me a buzz at your convenience to say I'm in Laramie right now. I was in San Francisco yesterday, headed for Washington Saturday, and so there you are. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. I wanted to call him back immediately, but it was weird enough that I waited a few minutes until I was out of the office. It was the end of the day. I was on my way home, walking up 6th Avenue in Manhattan toward the subway. Senator Simpson, I said, this is Anna Sale. He sounded delighted to hear back from me. And then he started telling me why he'd called. It didn't have anything to do with the national debt or anything else Al Simpson is known for in politics. He wanted to talk to me about my ex-boyfriend, Arthur. In other words, Senator Alan Simpson, a total stranger, wanted to talk to me about my love life. I better explain. A month before, Arthur and I had broken up. We'd been mostly long distance for two years. He's an ecologist, and he was spending a lot of time in Wyoming doing field work. He was finally going to move to New York to be with me, but I had the feeling it wasn't for keeps. Like, I asked him if we were going to buy a couch together, and he dodged the question. So on the day I was going to sign a lease for our new apartment, we got on the phone and agreed to call it off. After we hung up, I backed out of the apartment, and he had to deal with a half-packed U-Haul in Wyoming. No, it was not half-packed. It was entirely packed. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) This is Arthur. Our breakup was one of those classic, I love you, but this isn't going to work breakups. Our version was, we're in our 30s, I'm a reporter in the city, you study wildlife in the wild. This doesn't have a future. Arthur returned the U-Haul, and just a tip if you're ever in this situation, he got all his money back when he mentioned the breakup. A few weeks went by, then Arthur texted and called. He had changed his mind. He wanted to get back together. Arthur kept insisting he had a plan for how our lives really could fit together. I thought he was panicking about being alone. We were just in different places. You thought it was impossible for me to have figured all that out, and I knew it was possible. And you you remember what you said to me? Well, I basically said, this is not the way it's going to happen. You s- no, it was, it was even <laughs> sadder. Oh, really? <laughs> you said, Anna, I know you're the only one for me, and I'm one of the only ones for you. I know that. Oh, God. (laughs) Wow. It was so hard, so sad, but I just wasn't convinced. So I pushed ahead, 
I got busy with work. I even went on a few dates. I heard from friends that Arthur was a mess. And at some point I was just sitting there and I just thought, well, I can't. There's no argument that I can make. I've, I've said everything I can say. So either she changes her mind or something else has to happen. Something funny has to happen. You know, so things had just gotten too hard and they had gotten too... Our story had just become too... Heavy. Heavy. Dear Senator Simpson, the love of my life, Miss Anna Sale, lives in New York City. We've known each other for two years and three months. I love Wyoming and have indulged its pull a little too much. And so a month ago, Anna stopped believing I would ever close the distance to be with her, and she cut me loose. I don't blame her. I was being a fool, and I took her for granted. But now I see, eyes wide open, my mistake. Senator Simpson, I've poured, this is the one, I've poured my heart and soul into Wyoming for six years. I hope you will consider this as a favor for a man who's risked it all for that place. Perhaps Arthur wanted Al Simpson to call me and invite me to a ball in Wyoming. All the Wyoming political royalty would be there. Al Simpson, Dick Cheney. I'd known for months that Arthur was going to be a guest of honor at this ball. He was getting this big prize for wildlife research. I was supposed to be Arthur's plus one until I told him I wasn't going anymore. That's when Arthur wrote to Al. And Al and his wife Anne got involved. Okay, what did you, I mean, when you first read that, what no, did you think? No, I just think? thought it was the, the oddity of the ages. And I, I looked at it, put it away, and then Ann and I were in Denver, and I said, i got to do something with this thing. I think I'll just toss it. And Ann looked at it, and she said, worth a try. This is just the sweetest letter. And I thought, that would be a shame not to call. With, with esteem and humility, he ends. He seemed very desperate. He was desperate. And some of that had rubbed off on Al. When he reached me on the phone that first time, I got a hard sell. He confessed he didn't know much about us, but he told me all couples have hard times. Then Ann got on the line and asked me, what have you got to lose? It was bizarre, but I was also moved. Arthur's Hail Mary was totally romantic. I told Arthur I'd go to the ball with him. And that weekend in Wyoming was wonderful. The Simpsons were just as sweet and open as they'd seemed on the phone. They were easy to talk to. Arthur and I ended up telling them stories about how we'd met and why we'd split up. They chimed in with their own. And then a few weeks after the ball, Arthur and I got back together. He even moved in with me in New York. And strangely, we kept talking to Al and Ann Simpson. After that first phone call, we talked a lot. They gave us advice. I needed it. I was still uncertain about the future. Because, look, I'm divorced. I'm in my 30s. I want to be a mother. I was so afraid of making the wrong choice again and losing time. And after things had been so strained with Arthur, it was a relief to listen to the Simpsons, who'd been together 60 years, but hadn't always felt like they were on solid ground either. They didn't always know what was going to happen together. Anne struggled in their marriage when their three kids were young. 
And before that, when they were dating, Al was drinking a lot, and Anne worried that he was an alcoholic. They weren't just telling me these stories to get them off their chest. It did seem like they really wanted to help Arthur and me. It was surprisingly intimate and useful. So much so that I asked if I could come to their house in Cody, Wyoming, and talk to them some more. They said, sure. They're like these elder statesmen of relationships. They enjoy showing off what they've learned. Take this story about one big fight that started on a dance floor. Al and Ann were at some event. And uh, she was dancing with a guy who I knew was a horny old toad, you know, and I thought, you know, and she loves to dance. And so she's whirling around the floor and giggling and laughing. And So anyway, uh, we, uh, we all got home. And I said, you know, I want to tell you something. I saw you snuggling up to that horny bastard there. And she said, look, I am not into this to play games, but I'm not going to be under a glass lid just because of your jealousy. And I love to dance, and I will do that. And I'm not going to jump in the sack with somebody, so I think you better get over it which really pissed me off. So I gave her a lecture. It was a beautiful thing about life and, you know, fealty and love and loyalty and all the rest. I thought, she won't sleep a wink. And ten minutes later, I look in, she... <laughs> absolutely dead but asleep. Guilt-free. Guilt-free. And me... <laughs> I got boulders in my gut down here. I didn't sleep, but I did one important thing. I'd always loved Shakespeare. And I went in and read Othello that night. Took a long while. How he killed the most beautiful person in his life, Desdemona. Choked her. Smothered her right in the bed, the marriage bed. I thought, Jesus, this this is one sick son of a bitch. This is not me. This is totally destructive and it has nothing to do with her. The Simpsons say they learned to get past things like Al's jealousy by doing the obvious thing, talking about it. Sounds trite until you hear just how corrosive not talking about something can be. The Simpsons told me there was one thing they didn't talk about until they were at least a decade into their marriage. And it didn't come out until after they did some couples counseling through their church. And one time, I don't know, we've been married 15 years. She said, I've never told you something. I said, well, go ahead. I'd had an experience of being molested. So. Mm. And uh, it, it was just something that I was always aware of when, in the, in, when I had sex. And once I was able to talk about it, diminished. It was a gift. It must have made you feel so safe. It did. I felt safe. That's exactly right. The hardest thing for all couples to talk about is sex. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to believe, but it is. And the big issues in all marriages that hang it up is your sexual relationship. You know, we're older, so it isn't the issue now that it was when we were young, but it was a big issue, and it is in all marriages. Well, then when you talk about it, you're, you think, uh, well, there's a couple of horny people and want to... No, that's not the point. It, it's called intimacy. Scratch my back, give me a hug, 
just a hug. I said, okay. <laughs> you know, I've had a lot. But just a touch, you know, a whack on the fanny in the kitchen, you know, or whatever, whatever. Hearing these very personal details about their marriage, I could almost forget about their very public lives. But then Alan Ann told me about one of their hardest moments. It happened right at the center of a national controversy. Tell him about that. Yes, that's when he was in the Clarence kind of Thomas thing. Pissed me off. And I said to all the men on that one, I said, you all came across like a bunch of bullies. This was back in 1991. If you remember, Clarence Thomas was a nominee for the Supreme Court. A law professor named Anita Hill told the Senate Judiciary Committee that Thomas had sexually harassed her when he was her boss. Al Simpson was a Republican on that committee, and he had some questions about Anita Hill's story and her motives. If what you say this man said to you occurred, why in God's name would you ever speak to a man like that the rest of your life? That's a very good question. While the hearings were happening in D.C., Anne was back in Wyoming, caring for her mother who was critically ill. And I was not following it moment by moment. And uh, when I finally did, I just couldn't believe the way Al was operating. And uh, I did tell him, you know, you all sound terrible. You sound like a bunch of male chauvinist pigs. Al and Ann said they talked every night during those hearings. And I would say, you know... She said, I don't know what you're doing today, but for God's sake, you look really nasty. You look like a beast. But don't forget, I'd had a wife. I never said who. Wife and mother. One of them there are a lot of abused, ways to justify One of them would had much more harassment than Anita Hill. And that's where I lost my marbles. I thought, what is this? I mean, for God's sake, what did he do? Well, nothing. Did he touch you? No. What is it? Well, he wanted to talk about long, long silver and pubic hair and Coke cans. Is that it? Yes, it is. I wanted you to be aware of his behavior. <clears throat> and so I, you know, I was a monster. I just was pissed to the core. Al Simpson got called out, not just by his wife. Editorials across the country blasted him for attacking Anita Hill with rumor and innuendo. Al Simpson lashed back at the press, and Ann knew he was going too far. You know, he just kept getting more and more worked up, and almost he had, they had lost their balance. And then uh, one time he was at home, and I said, you know, you have a wonderful reputation, the way you've always operated. And it seems to me that you are caught in something and you just need to shut up. Shut up. He said, you've never said that to me before. I said, well, I am now. You know, there's a time to just recognize when you're out of control. And sometimes you have to identify that in the other person. This is still a tender spot for Al Simpson when it comes up. Some things he's contrite about, other things he relitigates. And Anne's still disappointed. It's not resolved, it's just past, stitched into their long relationship together. That's what the Simpsons kept saying to me. You're never going to get rid of conflict, so you have to face it. And you have to do that together. That's all it is. You decide to make it work. There are lots of different ways. We had ways. 
other people have different ways, you make the decision. That was the big thing I had to do. Decide. We didn't have to have all the logistics hammered out. We just had to make the choice to figure it out together. So as crazy as it sounds, Arthur's letter to Al Simpson worked. Not because he convinced a retired politician to call me up, but because it reminded me of the kind of man Arthur is. Dogged and brave and willing to ask for help when we need it. You know, a good person to spend decades figuring things out with. And Al and Ann Simpson, they still keep up with us. They just had Arthur over for dinner when he was back in Wyoming for work. Ann kept asking him when we were going to get married already. She even offered possible venues in town. I think Al thought she was being a little pushy. Because the next day, I was sitting at my desk in New York and my cell phone rang. It was former Senator Alan Simpson calling again to talk about my love life. He wanted me to know Arthur handled it all just fine. Anna Sale. This story is part of her brand new podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, which comes from WNYC. It just launched this week. Welcome to the world. New podcast. The whole idea of this podcast is that Anna's show is going to feature lots of intimate conversations like the one you just heard with The Simpsons about things that we all deal with but are usually too polite to bring up. It's free to sign up. Get it weekly. Go to iTunes or deathsexmoney.org. Act three, horse of a different color. So usually when you look for outside help, what you need is an expert, right? You need a senator. You need paramedics with parachutes. You need somebody with experience and skills. The, the family of one of our producers, Hannah Jaffe Walt, found themselves with a problem. And after going to all the usual places and experts and all that, they found themselves saved not by one of them, but by a complete novice. Just a note, because the story gets into the personal lives of children, we have changed some of their names. Here's Hannah. Usually you have no idea how your new baby compares to her peers until you go to the pediatrician. And they put her on the scale, they show you those charts, and you can see your kid is underweight or tall. It wasn't like that with my sister Maya. My mom and her partner Ellen traveled to China to adopt Maya, and they were part of this big group of adoptive parents who were all hanging around the hotel until the paperwork went through, which meant my stepmom Ellen had 35 direct comparisons every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's a picture that was taken the day before we left that hotel, and all the babies are lined up on a couch, and Maya's in the middle. And Maya is conspicuously, looks conspicuously different. Uh, the other babies are smiling, or some of them are crying, but there's, there's some kind of, it's hard to articulate what it is about Maya that looks different, but she just seems like she's not there, like she's out of it. Maya turned one while they were still in China. A lot of babies learn to walk around that age, around one year old. Maya couldn't sit up. She couldn't grasp things in her hands, and she'd only eat out of a bottle. But as soon as she got home, that changed really quickly. Here's my mom, Sarah. She learned to sit, and then she learned to eat. And she eventually learned to crawl, and she learned to, to walk, and she started to talk. And by three and a half, Maya was drawing, using scissors, and my microphone. Uh, uh, uh. It's not working. Say something. Hi, Maya. How are you? I'm fine. 
I want to watch Mary Poppins. By five years old, there was no question Maya had bonded with both of her moms. This is my mother, Ellen. She's going to play Twinkle Twinkle on guitar while I sing along. Maya's 20 years younger than me, but when she was little, I showed her off like a grandparent does. She was the MVP of my wedding, running around in her dress and her tool belt, sharing her encyclopedic knowledge of dinosaurs with all my friends. She knew a lot about dinosaurs. Maya could sit down with a guitar and freestyle lyrics about how the supercontinent Pangaea was separated in the time of the dinosaurs. Pangaea separated the time of the dinosaurs. And how one of the biggest meat eaters was Gigantinosaurus, whose tooth was as big as a banana. Of a banana. That is so big. <laughs> Mommy, you should be scared of it. I should. Sir Barton, Gallant Fox, Omaha, War Admiral. Around eight years old, the dinosaur obsession switched to horses. And it's been horses ever since then. A lot of girls love horses. Maya loves racehorses. Maya's now 13, and she will walk right up to you with her pad of paper and just begin talking. 516, painter, optimizer. It's hard to tell if the obsession with horses is more intense or if it's the same as it was with dinosaurs, only now it strikes people as weird instead of cute. It strikes people, as it may have struck you, that Maya has autism. For technical reasons, Maya's never been diagnosed as on the autism spectrum, but she does exhibit almost all the characteristics, including sensitivity to touch, lack of eye contact, obsessive and intense interest in one topic, and... Difficulty with social-emotional reciprocity, what many of us call conversation. Man of War, Ligarodi. What is this that you're reading to me? Racehorse names. But just every racehorse you've ever heard of? Well, the first page, um, Sir Barton to affirmed. Those 11 are the Triple Crown winners in the United States. Street Life to My Adonis. Maya can tell you every horse that's won the Triple Crown since 1919, their results, their injuries. She tracks the major awards, such as the Eclipse Award, which is comprised of more than a dozen categories, which she will recite unprompted over a snack of Doritos. Male, three-year-old, female, older male. And then there's the categories for people, which I don't find as interesting. You don't find the categories for people interesting? No. Why not? Um, because the people aren't horses. People have always been hard for Maya. In preschool, kindergarten, she never really made friends. We figured she just wasn't interested. But as she got older, it became clear it was the other children who weren't interested in her. First grade, second grade, third grade. The only time Maya ever got invited to someone's house was when the entire class was invited. In the meantime, Maya amassed a team of therapists who diagnosed her with reactive attachment disorder, RAD. Kids with RAD often have been neglected or abused as babies. They don't emotionally attach to anyone early, so they have attachment disorder. 
which in Maya's case was just one diagnosis to be followed by a series of others that all seem to take her most obvious character trait and add the word disorder to it. And true to the label, Maya did not attach to other children, which was so painful to watch because it wasn't that she didn't care. She just didn't know how to interact. She didn't know how to have a back and forth. She would ask my mom or Ellen to invite someone over and that someone would come over and then they just wouldn't come back or return the invitation. Maya didn't get why her friends were always so busy. Well, at school, there were kids who would like, always be playing together as the same group, the same people always playing together. And I was never really a part of those groups. I'm more by myself at recess. What do you do at recess? Draw, play games, like that don't involve many people. In fourth grade, in a bout of utter boredom, Maya went and knocked on the neighbor's door. She asked if their boys could play. They were busy. And then Maya sat down on their porch and just started wailing. No one will play with me. And then things got really dark. She stopped asking for playdates altogether. She stopped reading. She stopped smiling and sleeping. And she was on the edge all the time, especially at school. A kid would take her pencil or brush up against her at the bus stop, and Maya would blow up. She had to be physically restrained. She broke a window. She was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. She got hospitalized for a brief period. Here's my stepmom, Ellen. How I felt so helpless, and like I had no idea what to do. And none of this is working. None of it's working, and I'm, you know, I'm out of ideas. It's like, help, what are we going to do with this kid? In our family, we talk about Maya's life in two sections, B.C. and A.C. Everything I've just told you about, that's all B.C., before Charlotte. What happened next is A.C., after Charlotte. And this is Charlotte. Well, um, it was the first day of this camp. It was really hot. And we were just waiting for everyone to get there, and we were hanging out. And um, it was hor- it was a horse camp, so we were watching these guys throw hay down from a hayloft in the barn. And Maya goes, I did that one time at a place called Haydown Farm. And we thought that was hilarious for like six months. <laughs> hay down. Get it? You do get it. Don't overthink it. That is the entire joke. Maya had found her audience. Her audience was Charlotte. As a parent, you try to construct various environments for your kids so that when you have to cast them off on their own, hopefully the right thing will happen. You baby-proof the cabinet, so hopefully the baby won't eat poison. You put the kid in a good school and hope she'll learn math. Ellen put Maya in horse camp, but by this point, by the time Maya was 11 years old, a friend was not even on Ellen's list of things to hope for. They'd sort of given up on that. She just wanted to see her kids smile once or twice a week. But she dropped Maya off the second day of camp. And I met Charlotte's mom there, and I said it. Maya seems to be kind of connecting with Charlotte. And she said, yeah, uh, Charlotte feels, this, you know, really is feeling a connection with Maya, too. And in fact, 
She said, Mommy, Maya is perfect. And my jaw practically hit the ground with a thud. I just kept saying it to myself in the car all the way home. Maya is perfect. Mommy, Maya is perfect. It's like, this is not possible, but it is. It's just, her mom said it. It must have really happened. I asked Charlotte recently why Maya was perfect. She told me it was pretty simple, actually. She was the only girl my age at camp. Did you like her? Yeah. Um, It was pretty clear from the beginning that we had a lot of common interests. Like what? Horses. Um, yeah. Perfect. Charlotte invited Maya over for a play date that Thursday. Just like that. No big deal. Just, hey, you want to come over? And she did. Maya went over. And it went fine. There was another play date. And then another and another. And Charlotte and Maya would sit on the floor together with their model horses. Mostly they did their own thing. They weren't talking or laughing a lot. But we all thought, wow. This is working. Maya has a companion. And then, a couple months in, they invited Charlotte on an overnight to D.C., and afterwards they got a hotel, and Ellen could hear the kids in the other room telling jokes. And they just cracked up, and Maya lost it, and she just started laughing and laughing and laughing. Uh, And Charlotte making fart jokes, and uh, Maya just exploding in laughter. And I was lying there in the other room thinking, this is a miracle. I can't believe this is happening. She's she's giggling and talking and whispering at a sleepover, like 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 regular kids. What would you have imagined Maya would do in that situation? I would have imagined her saying, Hey, go go to sleep. It's nighttime. The light is off. I am tired. But that night, Maya discovered what a sleepover could be. My mom had a moment like this, too, where she realized that AC was a wildly different era than BC. She was watching Maya with Charlotte, and at first she couldn't figure out what was going on with Maya. She looked weird. And then my mom realized, oh, that's happiness. Uh, It's just, it's hard to describe how thrilled she was. I I felt like Maya would jump out of her skin. AC is just that kind of, you know, uh, engagement with somebody else and engagement in the world. Um, That uh, I had hardly seen it in years at all. (laughs) Maya just turned 13 a couple weeks ago. The only thing she wanted for her birthday was a sleepover with Charlotte. So Charlotte came over, and the two of them sat on the floor with their model horses for hours. What's your name? Sonia. What's your name? I'm Secretariat. Charlotte loves to play Haley, a young rider who's whiny and thinks she knows everything. Maya likes to play, well, Maya, someone who does know everything and can set Haley in her place. I've done everything ever. Have Have you raced in the Kentucky Derby? Probably. I don't know. I don't remember. I would have been really little. 
I take that as a no. You have not raced in the Kentucky Derby. Because really little people do not, like really young people do not race in the Kentucky Derby. How do you know I'm not 800 years old and I'm just short because I'm a jockey? Oh my gosh. <laughs> 800 years old. No one's lived to be that old. How do you know? Have you died yet? No. Well, then how do you know you're not going to live to 800 years old? Because people just don't live that long. That right there, that is a genuine back-and-forth interaction. Maya is not lecturing. She's not ignoring Charlotte. She's amused. She is feeling amusement. And she's responding directly to what Charlotte is saying. Maya and Charlotte have been friends for almost two years now. We'll be two years into AC this summer. And here are the basic facts of AC. Maya no longer regularly gets in trouble at school. She now does her homework and washes her hair without a struggle. She has not had one violent incident, AC. She makes eye contact sometimes. She asks, how are you, sometimes. She does chores. That felt impossible, BC. All of it seemed impossible, BC. The other day, I went to pick up Maya from school, and her bus driver got out of the bus to introduce himself to me and tell me, Maya, she's really worked on herself this year. She's doing great. Her horseback riding instructor pulled my mom aside the other day to say, Maya's been making eye contact with me. I've never seen that before. It feels like when people see a really beautiful piece of art and they can't wait to talk to someone about it, just to say, did you see that? Awesome, right? And Charlotte, I can't imagine a kid better suited to being Maya's friend than Charlotte. Just listen to the way she talks and try remember, this kid is 13 years old. How would you describe Maya? She's extremely obsessed with racehorses. What's that been like for you? Well, I've learned a lot of new stuff from her, actually, because half the time it's all she'll talk about. But it's been really interesting because it's a whole new part of the horse world that I wasn't really familiar with till I met her. You know, all the Triple Crown winners in order. What else do you know about her? She's really smart, but sometimes she's a bit lacking in the social graces. Just a little bit. Sometimes it makes her really funny. Charlotte's noticed that if she talks about something she's interested in that's not horses, like Star Trek or Harry Potter... It used to be that Maya just wouldn't respond. She didn't know what to say. But lately, Charlotte says, Maya tries to be interested in whatever she's talking about. And sometimes she'll even respond to it by connecting it to horses, which I think is kind of a neat thing to be able to do. I just think it's really cool when people connect everyday things to things that are really their passion. Yeah, it's, really it, smart. it can be a great way to interact with the world. When I ask her how she deals with it when Maya has tantrums, Charlotte says... Sometimes I wait it out, or sometimes integrating humor can be helpful. See what I mean? That's a special kid. And Maya can see that. This is a really important friendship, and I've been learning how to be a better friend in order to keep the friendship. Like what kinds of things are you learning? Be more flexible. Um, talk, Not just talk about what you want to talk about all the time. Do other stuff that your friend wants. The morning after Maya's birthday sleepover, I found her sitting outside the bedroom door at 6 in the morning, waiting for Charlotte to wake up. 
She wasn't allowed to wake her up until 8, so Maya was just sitting there. I don't think I'd completely gotten this until I saw Maya waiting. Maya loves Charlotte. She loves her. She feels the feelings that come when you're a girl and you have a friend who makes you laugh and thinks about you when you're apart and gets you. It's not a romantic love, but if you've had this, you know it feels just as important. Maya's getting to experience the joy of being 13 and having a best friend. And that is why she's willing to work so hard. It's why she's trying to learn how to read facial expressions and social cues, to control waves of anger and frustration, to sit still when all you want is to wake someone up. You have to really want something to work that hard for it. Charlotte's going to high school next year, and she's just growing up faster than Maya is. She could move on, maybe soon. Something we talk about all the time and try not to think about. We know BC and we know AC, but we don't know what comes after. Maya needed the friendship to learn how to be a friend, but maybe, hopefully, now she knows. And with or without Charlotte, she'll be okay. Kana Jaffe Walt is one of the producers of our show. Our program was produced today by Robin Semyon with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey, Walt, Sarah Koenig, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhevar, Brian Reed, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, production up Allison Davis. Seth Glenn is our operations director. Emily Condon is our production manager. Elise Bergerson's our administrative assistant. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Research help from Julie Beer and Michelle Harris. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Amy Isaacson, Emily Botine, Chris Bannon, and Pendley, Jennifer Keller, and Charlotte's mom. Pam. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he always reminds me when our program is on the air, he sits at the radio station's master control console, his finger poised above the controls, and at any moment, any moment at all, I do anything he doesn't like. But do press his little button, and then that's it. Game over. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week for more stories of this American life. I need help. PRI Public Radio International.